0: Everyone, Uh, thank you for joining our weekly Cancer Center Grain Rounds, and we have really a special session for you today, and I think that's also evident by the way uh, people are trickling into this session very quickly here.
1: Um, Good good afternoon. Mm -hmm. It's 3.09 p.m. on Tuesday, February 1st, 2022. In warm California, warm for at least another hour before it starts to (laughs) rapidly deteriorate into cold weather. We're listening this afternoon to the Mayo Clinic. Year three of COVID-19, Harsh Truths, Realities, and Blah Blah, with um, some of their leading experts, Dr. Poland, looks like it says Gregory Poland, but they'll give you more information. Thank you for listening and supporting and sharing our global family village with the world and share like and subscribe on YouTube on the R Turpin YouTube. And uh, Su Yang, Su Yang Turpin YouTube, also on YouTube, The Real Fishing, R-E-A-L, Real Fishing, with Tiger 180. Yeah, he's expanding He has his music on live365fm.com radio, online radio at live365.com. He's also podcasting on Anchor and Spotify and everywhere. The Do Better with Tiger 180. He is also accepting donations, subscriptions, dollar sign, Tiger 180. That's his Cash App handle, dollar sign, Tiger 180.
0: Our today's topic and today's speaker uh needs essentially no introduction so if you do not know what COVID is or who dr poland is you must have been living under the rock um uh when i think of dr poland i, I think of vaccines and he uh has a long and illustrious career and we have as we have uh, recapped on, on a couple of occasions already so far over the last uh six uh, eight months or so but i'll uh, suffice to say that he is uh he's an endowed professor of medicine uh and, and has spent a large part of his career at Mayo clinic in rochester uh he was awarded a very prestigious award of a distinguished investigator at the Mayo clinic in 2013 which is given really to people that have dramatically impacted uh not only uh scientific discoveries but also uh patient care He uh, has been in the role now for quite a few years as as a Director of the Program in Translational Immunovirology and Biodefense in the Department of Medicine uh, at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. He's a Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease, Molecular Pharmacology, and Experimental Therapeutics, and he is the Director of Immunization Clinic and Services at Mayo Clinic. Uh, his long list of other leadership and, and directorship positions is too long for me to go through as it is uh, to go through his honors and uh, awards and visiting profess- professorships, uh, which are quite remarkable. Given that everybody is dying to hear about uh, COVID and the update on all the variants that we are struggling with, as uh, I would uh, uh you know, predict that every one of us has somebody or knows somebody who has just had COVID or just has COVID. If we were in person, I would ask for the show of hands, how many are currently positive? Uh, and maybe maybe that would be an interesting question if we could poll everybody here. But without further ado, Dr. Poland, uh, we look forward to you updating us on, on this uh, plague that we're going through.
2: Alex, thank you, thank you very much. Um... Let me just be sure you can see my screen. Are, are you able to see my screen? Not yet. Yeah, not yet. Hmm, wonder why. Let's try that again. Now? That's good. Uh, now we can see it. Yep, perfect, it's in okay. presentation mode. All right, let me shrink this, move these controls. Okay. Well, I, I entitled this, and, and Alex, thank you for that, for that introduction, and hello to all of my colleagues. Uh, I, you're all over the United States, so uh, good morning, good afternoon to everybody. Uh, I entitled this year three of COVID-19, Harsh Truths, Realities, and Some Glimmers of, of Hope. Uh, disclosures, basically all of the Western vaccine manufacturers I provide uh, consultation to, and we've been funded to develop our own uh, novel platform COVID vaccine. Well, my objectives are really to help uh, understand the continuing reality of SARS-CoV-2 and the intersection with human behavior, understand practical aspects of illness-induced and vaccine-induced immunity, benefits of vaccines and infection. I'll start with uh, Sir, Sir William Osler, who said humanity has but three great enemies, fever, famine, and war. Of these, by far the greatest, by far the most terrible, is fever. Well, the situation is that we are dealing with a novel virus and rapidly changing genotypes, highly kinetic data, irrational human behavior, Uh, uncertainty, a continuing surge in morbidity and mortality. And I want to make the point, because people become sort of locked in to what they learned a year ago or a month ago. Everything we say is conditional and tentative on the current situation. A new variant could change some of the data that I'll share with you. Well, the reality is because of that, much of what one knows is likely wrong, outdated, tinged with false presuppositions, and based on belief-dependent realism. That's a, a term psychologists use whereby people come to conclusion about a topic and data does not change their mind. But I hope we would all agree that the best method, the best method, of knowing truth for a science issue is the scientific method. And this is often compatible, incompatible with what one wants to believe. So the harsh reality is that everything we understand about SARS-CoV-2 is conditional upon time, variant, geography, type of immunity, host factors and behavior, population structures and substructures and levels of immunity, the community burden of transmission and the interplay among the above. And for those of you that catch the reference, I often say, welcome to the matrix. Well, Alan Jacobs said, relatively few people want to think. Thinking troubles us. Thinking tires us. Thinking can force us out of our familiar comforting habits and thinking can complicate our lives. Well, more reality, the story of this pandemic is going to depend upon human behavior and viral behavior. And I think you intrinsically understand we only get to sort of control the first, although it influences the second. And as a result, we will continue to see the evolution of viral variants. Remember, this is the fifth time We've watched this movie, and some will and have developed the ability to evade in whole or in part both vaccine-induced and illness-induced immunity, as well as the value of antivirals and monoclonals. The brutal reality in the U.S. is this. As of Monday, a little over 870,000 Americans have died of covid That is one out of every 375. Unfathomable that this could be the case in the second decade of the 21st century. In a country with more literacy, more money, more of everything than any time in recorded human history. If you're over the age of 65, one out of every 100 people 65 and older have died of COVID. That's equivalent to 42 airplanes carrying 400 people crashing and killing everybody aboard every week for 52 weeks straight. We would never stand for it. U.S. males have lost two years of life expectancy. If you're a black male, three years. That's more than since World War II. More deaths than due to the 1918 influenza pandemic. Only 65% of eligible Americans are fully vaccinated. Only 25% of the entire American population is fully vaccinated. Among those that are vaccinated, only 33% have been boosted. And you ask yourself, how is this even possible? Well, because of distorting factors of human behavior, vaccine hesitancy and rejection, regardless of the amount of data, people who are anti-mask based on ideology and not science, political and economic conflicts of interest, a lack of courageous leadership. We now have an animal reservoir in deer and other animals. The false presupposition of the democratization of expertise. How many times do we hear a layperson say, well, I've done my research, as if that's equally expert, a false epistemology for determining truth, and cultural, pathologic, cultural narcissism, whereby we live in a me, not we, society. Well, Marcel Sandrail, the physician philosopher, said, each civilization, by its customs, its laws, its principles of thought, creates for itself a pathology appropriate to itself. A society chooses its diseases and shapes its own pathological destiny. And that, I would submit, is exactly what we have seen in the U.S. and, in fact, Western society. So what about SARS-CoV-2 variants and the lies we tell ourselves? Well, just a reminder that when we talk about the S or spike protein, This is the protrusion off uh, the virus that, in fact, gives us its name. So we're going to look at this S protein composed of the RBD or receptor binding domain, which is the S1 component and the S2 component of that. This is where the majority of mutations that impact our ability to uh, protect are occurring. So we're going to talk because it's basically all of the virus now circulating in the U.S. Uh, A month and a half ago, you would not have believed me, but now it's essentially all of the virus. This was isolated in Botswana in uh, early November of 2021, rapidly disseminated across South Africa and the world. The data suggests that it's about two to six-fold more transmissible than Delta, but a lower virulence compared to Delta. Surprisingly, a much larger, much, much larger than any variant we've seen genetic distance from the ancestral Wuhan strain. And therefore it further escapes both illness and vaccine-induced immunity compared to the other uh, variants of concern with evasion of the therapeutic effect of at least two sets of monoclonal antibodies, but also accounting for significantly enhanced infection of children, as opposed to the other VOCs. Don't worry about trying to see detail here. I wanted you to just get a sense of the amount of mutation that's occurred. On the far left side is the wild-type Wuhan strain, the Delta strain which caused so much problem. Look at the number of mutations across the genome of the uh, spike protein of Omicron, particularly in the receptor binding domain. Think of the receptor binding domain as the key, which inserts itself into the lock that we call the ACE2 receptor, such that it can enter into our host cells. So if you look at a top and a side view of that RBD and of the virus, you see the mutations that occurred in Delta and the overwhelming number of mutations that have occurred in Omicron. Likely this is a recombination event, but also uh, remember that every time we allow this virus to infect another human, we essentially hand it a lottery ticket to continue to mutate and recombine. And among people who have more chronic infection, like those that are immunocompromised, we allow the possibility for co-infection and therefore recombination events. Well, I wish I could see a show of hands to ask, what should we be more concerned with? A variant that demonstrates increased transmissibility or one that demonstrates increased virulence? So let's take a look at it. Let's take a baseline scenario where a community has a stable number of 10,000 infections. And let's assume that each new case generates an average of about about 1.1 new cases, something like what Wuhan did. And that around 0.8% of those new cases would result in death. In one month's time, therefore, you would expect what I show here, 129 deaths. Now let's take that same scenario, but make the virus 50% more lethal. The number of deaths goes from 123 to 100, or rather 129 to 193. So that's what happens when we make it 50% more lethal. Instead of changing lethality, let's make the virus 50% more contagious, more like Omicron. Now, after a month, there are 978 deaths or a 658% increase. That's what exponentiality does. This is where the media has not helped the public to distinguish. They talk about it as a milder virus, and people hear mild virus. But when um, even though virulence may be half of what it was with Delta, when you have three or four times more infections, you actually end up with more hospitalizations and deaths. This is a critical concept. It's why human decision-making always, this is the only time you'll hear me be dogmatic, always human decision-making fails in the face of exponentiality, because leaders are unwilling to make decisions at this point when we suspect exponentiality. So the gray line is the original virus. The uh, uh, red line is what happens if you make the strain 50% more lethal, something like Delta. The orange line is what happens is if instead of increasing virulence, you increase transmissibility. This is exponentiality. So let's look at what's happening as of this morning with COVID in the U.S. since July of 2021. Compared to our 2021 winter peak with Delta, now that we're seeing, and again, this is exponentiality of Omicron, cases have gone up 300% hospitalizations 115% and deaths almost 60%. So exponentiality cannot be controlled because of the biases and issues surrounding human decision-making. Therefore, this is no longer controllable by testing and contact tracing. In my mind, that's off the table. And there are now three ways in which this pandemic can be controlled. A hard lockdown with mandatory masking and distancing, and culture has rejected that. The virus mutates to be less transmissible. There's no evidence for that. In fact, quite the contrary. And we have a high-efficacy high efficacy vaccine that's widely used, and the culture has rejected that. Ergo, this cannot be controlled. All right.
1: one this was uh, 12 days ago and already some of the things that he was saying has uh, already been shall we say canceled by the uh, the behavior of the the current army um, Omicron virus, the last report, if you check Lester Holt, NBC Nightly News, for the last couple of days, well, today is now February 1st, 2022, Tuesday. If you check Monday, January 31st, and maybe one or two days you can even go back 12 days and you can see that the information that he has just given has already changed dramatically many of the places that had the high hospitalization rates and um ICU rates many of those have dropped I won't say how much, because, like they said in the beginning of this presentation, the information is constantly constantly changing, which is why everyone or so many people, including myself, is just um whew, just we we just really can't keep up. Can't make too much sense out of what these so-called experts are saying, and what I hear, what so many other people say they hear, is that this—that the information of the so-called experts in, con- in their analysis and conclusions, they—it seems to want to point the finger at all of us. And I submit when you point a finger at, at us, you're pointing four fingers and a thumb back at yourself, especially if you're so-called expert and you're the top of the line in immunology and Virology and vaccines. You're the experts. So tell us how do we suddenly become the scapegoats when you have all these honors and decorations and years, decades, a lifetime in the field. Why are we now, when things go so horribly wrong, Why are we now to blame for all of this? We're not the experts. We're told from day one, from childhood, to rely on the experts and their science and their experience. But when everything goes wrong, then we take the blame. see, that doesn't compute, in my mind, and so many other adults. That have been around for a few decades. That doesn't make sense to us. And that's where they are losing their battle. Because in the good times, they privatize all the profits. In the bad times, they socialize all the the costs and the causes and the blame. So you know we we may not have all the the medical degrees and all that, but surely our years and decades of experience and study is worth more than just um, they're demeaning it in the very first slide, if you look on YouTube the Mayo Clinic YouTube for this year three of COVID-19 harsh truths, realities, blah, blah. If you look at that, you'll see all their slides. And so and I'm for one, I'm not anti vaccine. I'm pro vaccine with informed consent and with Yes, I always say it with our ability to read and understand. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> our ability to read and understand. And now that they're selling us all these expensive test kits, and and some children, you know, moms are going to the store buying stacks and stacks of these test kits just so the children can stay in school. You can't even keep your child in the classroom without constant testing. And now this so-called expert, on his slide, it says, no longer controllable by testing and contract I'm sorry, contact tracing in the u s only three ways in which this pandemic can now be controlled: hard lockdown, or circuit breaking approach with mandatory masking and distancing virus mutates to be less transmissible high efficacy vaccine widely used those are the only three ways in which this pandemic can now be controlled according to this expert Dr. Poland well you know it's um again it's something that we're doing our level best and it's not really working you know we're buying the uh the tests they're not cheap in this area they're over $20 and good luck even with insurance good luck trying to get the insurance companies to reimburse you. No matter what the government tells them, they are going to do what they want. So, um, you know, they're expensive, and then we want, in my case, I want to have them available. I'd rather have, have them and not need them than to need them and not have them and the lady in the store says if she gave me which brand I won't use the brand I'll just say she had a choice of two different brands Binax I think was the first one and the other one that they have now Free Flow or Flow Free or something like that and let's say one and two, and she said number one is more reliable. And then um she, I think they say that because, I don't know, I'm just guessing based on the cost, the more expensive one they consider more reliable, and then you can see why, because they're making more profit. But she was saying even with that, she told me that um, I would need to test because I'd need to test at least two times for every test result to make sure that I got the same results twice. Because if the first one is negative, the second one might be positive. So you see. How are we, again, I'm not against the science. I'm trying to use everything available. Every tool that I can put in my arsenal, I want to use it. But again, why are we the fall guy or the fall girl? Why do we have to take the blame when everything that the so-called experts are doing fails? I don't get that part. And it's not because I'm not an MD or that I don't have a background in in medicine. I'm not a medical professional. I don't give medical advice. I tell everyone that listens into the podcast to do what I do. Go to your doctor, your nurses, your medical professionals, Ask them questions, take their advice along with using your brain. then make your decision based upon what your medical history shows and what your experience shows and what you know about your your body and your tolerance and threshold, and what works for you. That's what is best. Nobody else Nobody else knows more about what's right for your body, what's right for your mind and your health. Nobody knows better. The rest of us can only have good intentions and try to bring whatever information we can find but I found that even sitting down with doctors, nurses, and so-called ex- experts, most of the time they will say, "If well, if I ask, will you test my antibodies? Will you test to see if I made antibodies for Delta or for Omicron? They'll say, oh, we don't have that test here. We don't do that test. Which you know, not just Kaiser, but many other hospitals in the United States, and will say the same thing: we don't do that test. So, then again, I have to ask: why are we the scapegoat? Why are we the the the, the bad guy in the scenario when we're trying to do everything? Unless we have a vaccine and all the boosters and up to the minute, then we'll consider the, the problem, even though we're not, I mean, they're even saying we can't vaccine our way out of all these variants. And we didn't create or cause the first uh, SARS- to virus but now we're being blamed for all the variants see that's hard for me to wrap my mind around so I would just say again when when they're pointing a finger at me or you or anybody that's not an so-called expert they're pointing four fingers and a thumb back at themselves Let us take a break and then come back. going to continue. How's everybody doing? Hope you're okay. And I was just thinking about the cost of these tests and what it would cost just for one child to have the least expensive test, which would in this area, would average 10 to $25 a day. Assuming one test is $10 before taxes, that's the cheapest one. And they need two to prove that it was either negative or positive to repeat the test. You have to test the child twice. So now you're Over $20 plus the taxes per day. The child is going to school five days out of the week minimum. Some go more. So you see how fast this is adding up. Alright, so we're talking about a minimum of $100 just for the test for one child for five days. Five days times 20. That's not including taxes. That's not even including masks. Just the cheapest test that the parent could find. Okay, And that assumes the child tests negative and can keep going back to school every day and doesn't need to go beyond those two tests. So the very minimum is going to be Around $100 in taxes for just the test a week. The one child. And you can see if you have two, three more children in school, how the cost just burns right through your pocket. You have to add on the, the masks. And then if they're feeling any symptoms, doctor's visits and medicine. Okay. And then, if the parent has to stay home, lost wages. You see, so oh, this is why the parents are so upset and saying uh, things that may seem, or oh, the experts call, irrational. <clears throat> this side is not presented. The only side is presented is, well, you're getting three hundred dollars uh, reduction in in what you would pay at the end of y- the year in your taxes or uh, actually the child tax allowance that you would get at the end of the year in your uh, return on your your taxes paid rather than getting that you they divide it up and say here's a check for three hundred Every month, ooh-wee, wow, look what we did. And then they maxed that allowance out after, I think, two children, three at the most. They're not going to cover four or five, six children, No, no way. So you can see why the parents in the states appear to be so irrational or illogical are out of control, um, why people can barely keep up with all the other rising costs, you know, it costs money, really costs money in every single thing around the world, but in the states, you know, and in states like California, Hawaii is even more expensive, Um, Texas is probably more expensive. New York certainly is. Just talking about cost of living. In many other places, you know, the the, uh, friends that I talk to in other states, they talk about how their cost of living is just skyrocketed. So this is not a game. And, um, you know, it's not good enough just to Make the consumer the bad guy if they don't want to consume everything that's shoved down their throat that's not going to last. there's going to uh eventually going to have to be solutions to these problems, and parents will do what's best for their children so if if you see the parents in the states upset, it's for a good reason. It's not just because they have no impulse control or they don't want someone telling them what to do. It's just the opposite. They want uh, information that they can use. They want the best for their, their children and their family. So, you know, uh, I guess it's best not to judge anyone ever. We just don't know. We don't know the what goes on behind closed doors. We don't know the situations that each individual parent has to confront. You know, I just feel so sorry watching the moms in the stores just buying and buying so many tests. You know, it's just heartbreaking. And now here, we hear that that from this so-called expert, that's not even a a reliable solution anymore. As of January 17th, that's the date on this, the date this video was posted. So at some point, These tests should have been sold with that information. But that's not how it is. As long as we consume, we're considered loyal patriots. And if you get a chance, look at what happened to the number one podcaster on Spotify. His uh, his attempt to... Interview. Get as many professionals and others to to address the issues. And now he's being slammed, and uh, some of the the artists that have taken them had that have had their music on Spotify. Some of the top performers. They're. Taking their music off of Spotify. There's a hashtag. Leave Spotify. Spotify's shares on the stock exchange dropped. And then recovered again. But you can see things can easily be resolved. Easily be resolved. Just by not playing the blame game. But to make anyone that wants more information if we ask for all sides of the issues if we ask for um unbiased balanced reporting then we're we're slammed as anti this anti that so be it but we need information so that's the end of my 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 chat for now, we're going to listen to a little more. This medical doctor's presentation is over one hour, but we'll hear as much as we can. Thank you for listening and supporting.
2: So, one other glance at exponentiality, so you really grasp this. Let's look at two scenarios. Assume 10 cycles of transmission in a naive population. Scenario a modeled to look more like alpha leads to less than 10,000 infections after 10 cycles increase that are not the transmissibility to six. And in those same 10 cycles, you get 60 million infections. That's the power of exponentiality. George Bernard Shaw said we learn from history that men never learn anything from history. And again, I could tear my hair out if I had any over this. We have watched this movie five times in two years and we seemingly do not learn. So what about vaccine efficacy and effectiveness? Well, this is a very complex interplay. There's no way to reduce this to a headline. And this is what the public and many providers don't understand. This interplay involves host characteristics. So my answer about vaccine efficacy is different based on your age, race, even gender, your baseline genetics, your comorbidities, the particular variant we're talking about at the time the inoculum size, the portal of entry, which vaccine and in what order you got them, the time since your vaccination, and even geography. Vaccine efficacy is a gradient of protection. Please understand this point. Getting vaccinated is not an on-off light switch. It is a rheostat. And the reason for that is the vaccines we have against COVID, like All of our vaccines are much better at disease blocking than infection blocking. The state of your underlying immune system health, which variant happens to be circulating, the community burden of transmission, and the others I've mentioned. So, this is a decreasing gradient of protection. The vaccines we have against COVID are spectacular in preventing death, severe disease, and even hospitalization and complications. They are less efficacious against mild and asymptomatic infection and prevention of transmission. When people say to you, well, I know people who got the vaccine but got it anyway, they're essentially advertising their ignorance of this basic biologic fact. Yes, they may have had asymptomatic or mild disease or a positive test, but chances are they did not end up in the hospital. Hospital, They did not end up with a plastic tube down their airway and they didn't die. And so to illustrate this, uh, this is a graph that a colleague of mine, uh, Natalie Dean, who's actually now at Emory uh, created If you look at the top, this is a vaccine that is disease blocking, but not infection blocking. The value of the vaccine is that you considerably decrease severe, moderate, and even mild symptomatic disease. You really collapse that, though you still have mild symptoms. The vaccines we have are more akin to the bottom. They prevent disease spectacularly well less so with infection but still do and so you're basically collapsing this to almost nothing among the vaccinated the people who are dying and being on mechanical ventilation are the unvaccinated Um, and so you really collapse that and decrease the total burden of disease so why do breakthrough cases occur well for the reasons i mentioned this gradient of protection waning immunity, increasingly immune evading variants, the very high community burden of transmission, host factors, and the apparent paradox of increasing cases among the immunized as more and more people are immunized. In other words, when everybody's immunized, the only cases that occur are among the immunized. Even though if if we didn't immunize anybody, we'd have, who knows, 1,000 fold the number of, compared to the small number of cases we see among the immunized. Other factors this is looking at antibody levels after an mRNA vaccine simply by age. And you get very different numbers if you're 20 than if you're 60 or 80. What about taking into effect age plus variant? This happens to be the gamut uh, variant. So if you look in the original strain, as I just showed you, we see decreasing antibody levels, i.e., these will wane to a level not protective faster when you're in your 60s and 70s than when you're in your 20s. Now add a variant to it. You further decrement the neutralizing ability of both illness-induced and vaccine-induced immunity. It is a very naive concept to believe that because I've been previously uh, uh, infected that I am somehow immune. That would be true with measles. It is not true with a non-monotypic virus like SARS-CoV-2. And so what happens, uh, and, and we see different arcs based on whether you got the Janssen, the Pfizer, or the Moderna vaccine, over time, the uh, uh, ratio for infection, the the hazard ratio, shows a predictable curve. This is, you're seeing waning here. And these curves happen to be adjusted for age, race, ethnicity, sex, and comorbidity. And still this is striking. So what do we? What can we say about Omicron and at least uh, what's been most commonly used, the Pfizer vaccine? You see an almost forty-two fold drop in the level uh, and, and neutralizing ability of antibody. Now it's a little different if you got infected plus vaccine than if you got vaccine alone. The problem is if you survived your infection, and what kinds of complications were you left with? So to show you vaccine efficacy against symptomatic disease over time in the US, if you got Moderna, your efficacy against, or your effectiveness against symptomatic disease dropped from 90 to 60%. If I could extend this, you'd be down to about 30% to 20%. For Pfizer, you dropped from about 87 to 40%. Down to between 0 and 20% now. J&J from about 86% to 13% to almost no efficacy now. What about those same time frames but the far right column against death in people? less than 65, and the far right number is people over 65. You see a drop, but much less significant, except for J&J, than efficacy against symptomatic disease. So even with time, people who are vaccinated retain excellent disease, severe disease blocking ability, but not infection blocking ability to the same extent, let me show you in different ways. This is Pfizer vaccine, and this is time on the X axis. And this is vaccine effectiveness on the Y axis. And the different colors represent age. The 12 to 15 year olds, they continue to do well. wanes with time. That's vaccine efficacy against infection. Take the same group of people. And look at vaccine effectiveness against hospitalization by time you see that it is retained this is the reason to get vaccinated this is why it's naive for people to say well why get vaccinated i've heard of people who get vaccinated and get infected what about booster doses well here's the the theoretical construct that we as vaccinologists bring to this so you have a new infection a new pathogen you want to quickly build immunity in the population you wait to see does immunity wane we found out that it does so you rebuild that immunity with the booster wait and see does it wane we found out that it does so what do you do we will probably not probably we will have to go to a variant focused vaccine because the genetic distance between this and the original strain is so great. And that is in an attempt to refocus immunity to the new viral variant. This is our own collective fault. So what happens is when you're talking about vaccine-induced immunity or illness-induced immunity, it all wanes all of it down to the point where you have no or little neutralizing ability. You may well retain immunity T cell immunity that blocks severe disease and death, but not milder levels of disease. So let's look at real world effectiveness data. This happens to come from Israel and this is looking at on the, on the bottom In blue, three doses, versus the red, two doses. Remember, Israel was the first country to move to three doses. Interestingly enough, though a far smaller country than us, their research and data capabilities are superior to ours. And they make policy based on data, not politics, rapidly. So what do you see? If you only got two doses, with time, your risk of admission to the hospital slowly climbed. That did not happen if you got three doses. What about severe disease? A a minimal, if any, detectable after three doses, but still evidence of uh, severe disease in two-dose recipients. What about death? Well, because you're now including older people with comorbidities, you can't perfectly protect against death, but a dramatically different curve in those who got three doses versus those who got two doses. So if you look at the current primary vaccine and booster dose, dosing in the U.S., with Pfizer, we can now go down to age five. <clears throat> Many of us are hoping that hoping that within the next couple of months, we'll be able to go down to perhaps as low as age six months. This is a concern. There are some 5,000 children in the U.S. hospitalized with COVID. The reason being is, unlike Delta, which was primarily lower respiratory tr- tract Omicron is has a, a greater affinity for the upper respiratory tract and depending on the age child you're talking about their airway will be smaller than your little finger so they get into trouble and require hospitalization at higher rates than adults so we need a vaccine for younger kids the dose varies by age group and booster doses are for, now it is, it is moved uh, down, but for Pfizer after age 12, five months after that second dose, we can boost. Same with Moderna, though we use a different dose with Moderna, same with J&J. For the immunocompromised, they, in essence, get a three-dose primary series, and then a booster. Now, I'm asked all the time about my preferences. so let me give them to you after your primary series for a booster dose five or more months later my preference would be toward a heterologous that is a different vaccine than what you got as your primary series and that preference based on the data would be moderna slightly edging out pfizer and much more edging out j and j if you got a j and J. Primary, your booster, you're eligible for a booster two or more months later. And again, my preference would go in the same order. Now, this could be changed by, um, let's say, you originally got an mRNA vaccine and had a particular side effect or issue, or you come to it with a comorbidity that might change our mind. But this would be my general preference. So let's look at what happens. So this is two dose recipients over time. And you can see that with Delta, the neutralizing uh, ability and therefore vaccine effectiveness slowly wane. But look at the difference in waning with the Omicron variant. Same with boosters, whether we're talking about Pfizer, little less so with Moderna, hence my preference location. Now, this is a little more complicated graph, but it gets at this idea looking at the columns. So the top is Moderna, the bottom is Pfizer, and then the columns are people who were recently vaccinated within three months, distantly vaccinated six to 12 months ago, distantly vaccinated and survived infection, and those who were boosted less than three months ago. And the basic point I wanted to to draw out here is that in all cases, whether we're looking at wild type or Delta, we see a decline with a dramatic decline for Pfizer anywhere from six to 43 fold with, I'm sorry, for, for Moderna with Pfizer anywhere from four to 122 fold decrease in the ability to neutralize the Omicron variant. A little better preserved if you had distant vaccination and you survived infection. And even better if you got a booster, though this will surely wane with time. So what about vaccine safety? And let me start off with saying there's no such thing as safe, only safer. This is another point I want to be dogmatic about. There is no risk free decision here. It is the balance. Wisdom resides in discerning the balance of risks and benefits. And you really only get three choices, though soon you'll have a fourth. What are they? You can risk getting infected with no apparent benefits. You can have the much smaller risks of a vaccine with major benefits. You can isolate yourself like Howard Hughes did, and that has a whole set of risks. And soon, a fourth choice, you could get shell, a monoclonal antibody combination every six months, which is highly effective against hospitalization and death. So let's look at a smattering of these risks. Let's take the Uh, mRNA associated myocarditis. This is much in the news. And again, we're discerning levels of risk. So, you know, which risk to take, you don't get the choice of no risk. If you choose to get infected, your risk of myocarditis is 16 fold higher than if you don't get infected.
1: Let's take a break. That's a lot to wrap your mind around. Thank you for listening. How's everybody doing? Good, I hope you're good. Okay, we have completed oh close to half of this presentation. We've completed 35 minutes and 27 seconds. And it's an hour in 16 minutes and 21 seconds. So we're better than halfway. Let's continue. Let's look
2: at benefits and risk after Pfizer. So um, let's take the highest risk of myocarditis and that's in boys 16 to 17. And really we could go into the late 20s uh, years of age. And so these are the myocarditis cases per million. These are COVID outcomes prevented by getting the vaccine. So let's take, uh, I'll just choose the highest, the 16 to 17 year olds. If you get the vaccine, you prevent almost 57,000 cases of COVID in that age group. You prevent 500 cases of hospitalization. You prevent 170 cases of ICU admission at the cost of 73 cases of myocarditis. Now, what can we say about myocarditis? It's mild, benign, and quick. The vast majority of these uh, will either be undetected or will be mild because everybody's freaked out about it. We hospitalize them. They're hospitalized for one or two days, may be treated with a non-steroidal and released. No long-term ill effect from this in quotes. So FDA is requiring Pfizer to follow these myocarditis cases through 2025 to see if there's any long-term effect. Has there been the very rare case of death or uh, more severe disease? Yes but we're talking onesies, twosies. So we're going to compare now on the far left, the first dose in purple of Moderna versus uh, Pfizer in whatever that is, yellow or orange. And you see that the rates are pretty equal after the first dose. Well, now on the far right, let's look at the second dose. We see a much higher, now we're talking about a scale of Uh, zero to three or four here. But nonetheless, we see much higher rates after the second dose of myocarditis or myopericarditis with Moderna versus Pfizer vaccine. This corresponds, we think, to a higher dose and more reactogenicity. It also corresponds with higher immunogenicity and protection. What about TTS with J&J vaccine? Well, let's look at those rates per million. Highest rates are in that 30 to 39-year-old group, about 1.3 per million in males, about 10 per million in females. So we've given about 15 million doses. This was as of mid-October, with 47 cases of TTS reported and five deaths. So let's try to put this all together. So I'm going to look on the top with J&J and the highest risk female group of TTS, about 8 to 10 per million if you get the vaccine. By contrast, what do we prevent by getting the vaccine? 10,000 cases, 900 hospitalizations, 140 ICU admissions, and 20 deaths. This is why I say which risk do you want? Do you want to die or do you want the risk of TTS when that risk of dying is twice as high? What about GBS in males in that 50 to 64 year old age group? One uh, sorry 14 to 17 cases of GBS preventing 10,000 cases, 1,800 hospitalizations, 480 ICU admissions and 140 deaths. Which risk do you want? Let's move on to mRNA vaccines with myocarditis in the highest risk group, 18 to 29 year olds with, let me just pick a mid number, 25 cases of myocarditis if you get the vaccine. If you don't get the vaccine, 9,600 cases of COVID, 300 hospitalizations, 60 ICU admissions, and three deaths. Maybe for you a little harder calculus, but let's at least let the numbers drive our decision, not fear, not what I read on social media. T.S. Eliot said when we do not know or when we do not know enough, we tend always to substitute emotions for thoughts and thinking. There are other issues here. It's not just about hospitalization. This is brand new data coming out. Sorry, this should say 2022. Um, They looked at 443 individuals after infection versus a larger number of matched controls, did a comprehensive organ organ assessment. What did they find after SARS-CoV-2? This is people who survived these were non-hospitalized. This is mild to moderate COVID. Their lung volume was decreased. Their airway resistance was increased. Left ventricular ejection fraction decreased. Right ventricular function decreased. Troponin and uh, NT-pro BNP elevated. Increased risk of DVTs. Decreased GFRs. So there are subclinical, and I think we're going to see a whole spate of issues in the years to come as people age or have another insult, something like what oncologists talk about when they talk about the two or three or multi-hit hypothesis for why somebody now develops a malignancy. I think we're going to see that with subclinical COVID disease. Now, let me show you, um, uh, a a study that looked at, uh, these were people that happened to die, uh, of their SARS-CoV-2, um, and they looked at biopsies across the human body and down on the bottom, the brain, the the reddish color shows a thousand to 500,000 copies of the virus, um versus blue, which is down to, uh, negative and clear. Um, and you look by day, so less than 14 days, 15 to 30 days, more than 31 days along the bottom. And you see ample PCR evidence of infection across different, uh, organs in the body, notably, not surprisingly, the respiratory tract, the myocardium, pericardium, and aorta, um, Thyroid, skeletal muscle, ocular tissue, and brain, which tends to decrease, though not be eliminated, as long as 31 days later. This undoubtedly accounts for some of the long COVID symptoms that we're seeing. Now, in people who died, these these are biopsies with immunohistochemistry examination of their brain. Basically, what I'm trying to show you is the green is uh, intact SARS virus, the magenta is the N protein. And you see throughout the brain and even brain blood vessels, ample evidence of actual infection in the cerebellum. So what happens next? Are we going to move to endemicity, to more variants, to more boosters? And the question I get asked by the media all the time, is Omicron the path to endemicity? Please ignore those people who say yes. They do not know because there is no way to know. We do not understand the biologic, virologic, and immunologic rules by which viruses become endemic. There's one exception. We know that very high population levels of immunity have a forcing action toward endemicity. And this is what people are getting on TV and saying, yeah, this is how we get to endemicity. That's possible, but it's only one of many likelihoods. Can this virus be eradicated? No, we gave up that right early on because of our human behavior, therefore continued transmission. We now have an animal reservoir immunity whether it's illness induced or vaccine induced wanes and we're seeing continued viral mutation and recombination events let me be bold here to tell you your great 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 grandchildren will be getting COVID vaccines just like if you got flu vaccine this fall and i hope you did you're being immunized against the 1918 variant. Anticipations, I think that under mutational selective pressure and recombination, we're going to see further changes. Um, And there's ample evidence for that. As I say, we've watched the movie five times. Scenario two is that it could mutate into a virus with significantly less transmissibility and virulence, allowing movement into the endemic phase. The problem is we have zero evidence for that to date. I'm going to skip by that one. So let's just look at Omicron versus Delta in the U.S. The risk of bad outcomes is less with Omicron. For children, 67% decrease Uh, Basically, 70% across hospitalization, ICU, and need for mechanical ventilation, 30% decrease in ED visits. Except what's happening? While it's 70 to 50% less likely to cause disease, we're seeing two and threefold more infection, paradoxically raising the number of cases 300% hospitalization 115% increase, death 60% increased. If you look at protection from prior infection, if you were previously infected, your protection against symptomatic disease due to alpha, beta, and delta was pretty good, but it dropped to 50% with Omicron. Severe disease retained pretty well. So there we always have to distinguish between are we talking about symptomatic disease or severe disease and death? How about risk of reinfection? Omicron is associated with about a five and a half-fold higher risk of reinfection compared to Delta. This has been very difficult to get across to the public. With Omicron, vaccine efficacy. 90 plus days after your second dose falls to between zero and 20%. Post dose three, it rises back up to 55 to 80%, but will wane with time. If we look at a healthcare worker study, 44,000 healthcare providers in the UK who are routinely PCR tested every 14 days, vaccine efficacy against mild disease was essentially zero by 20 weeks after the two dose course. After a booster dose, protection increased to about 70%, but dropped to 50% by about 10 weeks. But efficacy against severe disease after a booster dose was 92% and remained high at about 83% 10 weeks later. This is the argument for wearing a proper mask properly. It's inconceivable we have to make laws to enforce it. But these are the data. I guess I've shown you that already. Vaccine efficacy, as I said, just to show you, because people learn differently, after post-dose two for hospitalization, it still remains relatively high, but not against symptomatic disease. All right, Um, let's look at symptomatic hospitalization, ICU admission, mechanical ventilation, and mortality. The the S gene uh, drop-off is Omicron. The purple is Delta. And you see that the risk of hospitalization, ICU admission, mechanical ventilation, and mortality is indeed less. It's not zero, but it's less than Delta. Why are we seeing such a surge? Because unlike the case with Delta, we're seeing three and four times the number of infections. So even a smaller percentage leads to a higher number. So let me summarize here. We have some major issues, willful delusion among industry, government, and the public. In particular, belief-dependent realism, magical thinking, tribal think, and conflicts of interest. My assessment, and this is a slide I wrote in the beginning of November. I knew nothing about Omicron at the time. And my assessment is there was a non-trivial likelihood of a significant worsening pandemic that the US and Europe would not be capable of controlling. Consider though that SARS-CoV-2 is controllable with proper masking, distancing, add vaccines and it is eminently controllable. And yet we have proven ourselves incapable of rationally responding as a society. And I believe the evidence for this is overwhelming. This is one of the leading causes of death now in the US. In various geographic regions, the healthcare system is overwhelmed. As I said, one out of every 375 Americans has died of the disease I can prevent with a 25 cent mask and a free vaccine. Current modeling suggests 50,000 to 300,000 more Americans will die of COVID by mid-March. In 1625, 200 years before the germ theory of disease, during England's pandemic with the Black Plague, a theologian wrote this, abhor more than poison the wicked opinion that the pestilence is not infectious, that each can do whatever he wants, that avoiding purses and Persons and places and diligent use of means for preservation are needless and of no use. Stunning. So how do you manage a pandemic? You have to take into account human behavior and presuppositions. If you want to, if you want to control a pandemic, you have to have mandatory vaccination and mandatory masking, followed by antiviral and monoclonal development and use. Well, George Santiana said those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. Only look at 1918 to see he was right. Or if you prefer Mark Twain's code, history may not repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. So no surprise RNA viruses mutate, especially with unrestrained restrained multiplication masks and vaccines work, some better than others. Immunity wanes with time. Vaccines are better at disease blocking than infection blocking. Single antigen S only vaccines are not optimal. We were unprepared. And I will make one other statement. I believe it will only take a few years and we will again fall back into denial and complacency. I think we foolishly think we understand coronavirus and and that the pandemic is over. More variants will come and human behavior distorts and compromises rational response. So I will stop there and uh, we have a few moments for questions and I will stay longer since I went a bit longer to answer any questions that I can. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Paul, and this uh, was extremely informative as usual. And uh, I think, uh, judging by the comments that came in through uh, chat and question and answers, uh, people really enjoy this. Uh, for everybody, I know we typically end at 9 o'clock Arizona time. We will extend our discussion a little bit today, as long as people are interested in uh, staying, and it seems like they are. So. Uh, There was a set of questions uh, relating to the ability to predict what's going to happen to this pandemic compared to uh, 1918 influenza, where is this going to go? And I think you answered a lot of those. One interesting and practical question is given that so many uh, providers are getting sick, Uh, how do you envision us increasing that protection? Uh, Israeli data that's just coming out seems to suggest that the fourth booster does not prevent from Omicron very, very well. What, what do you think is the strategy there?
2: I think number one, a proper mask worn properly, mandatorily enforced number two. And I know what I'm saying is unpopular mandatory immunization Vanderbilt medical center mandates a booster. Um, and we need, as I say, a variant-focused vaccine in order to more adequately protect against Omicron and whatever's next. Very good.
0: Um, when we look at uh, the differences that you noted between Moderna, for example, and Pfizer, is there anything that we understand in terms of why one is more effective than the other?
2: Yeah, that's a can, can we
0: learn in terms of
2: creating new vaccines? Yeah, that's a great question, Alex. I I think the higher dose of Moderna served it well at the cost of increased reactogenicity. And this may be the bigger factor, the one week longer interval between doses. For all vaccines, Shingrix may be one exception and the only one we know about. The longer the interval between doses the better the immune response, of course, at the cost of until you get all your doses, you're not fully protected. So there's a tension there.
0: Thank you. Um, A lot of questions coming in. So uh, maybe I'll start with one that is probably the most provocative and and the hardest to answer. (laughs) Boosting, Boosting versus broadly vaccinating uh omicron seems to have arisen in a different country on a different continent and whether it's uh you know uh zimbabwe or south africa or switzerland or japan uh if the world population is not vaccinated uh, are we safe even if we
2: have strange specific uh vaccines this is a it's a tough question but it's a very fair question and let me answer it i could care less about politics. So I'm not going to be politically correct. That doesn't serve science well. The old saw is true until we are all safe, no one's safe. And absolutely, you know, Africa is only now just getting to 10% immunization rates. There are a lot of reasons and proposed solutions for that. I'm just pointing out that with the unprecedented amount of movement of humans and material in this century in this decade in this year that yes uh, these these variants will spread very rapidly worldwide including in our own country where we have so relatively few people immunized and where people are not wearing masks thank you
0: uh one very practical question that has been discussed many times but i think it's worthwhile uh, revisiting Question about masks, uh, surgical masks, uh, N95, can 95 Any advice in terms of uh, uh, relative protective
2: power? You know, there, there's no question that an N95 mask worn properly is the best mask protection. Uh, you know, I don't know about all the listeners. They're uncomfortable for me. <laughs> you know, I, I can't wear them all day. The next best is a KN95, being sure that it's not a counterfeit one and that it does not have a valve. The next best is a surgical or paper mask. The least effective are cotton masks. And the key, as I always say, is a proper mask worn properly above the nose, below the mouth, with no gapping when you go to inhale and talk, you can tell whether somebody's wearing a surgical mask properly. It will contract in a bit because of the seal that's been achieved. Uh, I thought this was a hard question, but there's one
0: even harder, I think. Uh, Somebody (laughs) asked, what can we as health
2: professionals do to impact and change human behavior? Um, you know, it, it's, it's really hard. I mean, wh- why do I do what I do, even though I know how ineffective it is for the public? Well, a few reasons. I'm inherently an educator and driven. And I think as physicians, we all are. Number two, the chance to save one person is worth it. And I do get cards and letters and emails from the general public thanking me and saying they changed their, their minds. I really think the answer, the real answer to this is changing our society by changing our education system. People do not understand probability. How are they possibly going to interpret the data? They are what are called innumerate, the mathematical equivalent of illiteracy. They do not understand the scientific method, and so they're prone to every snake oil salesman that comes along. It's really advocacy and being present. Yeah. Another question that
0: came repeatedly relates to the mix and match of the vaccines.
2: Any thoughts about that? Any cautions? Uh, no, no particular cautions from the mix and match strategy per se like everything in medicine. If, if you told me, um, you know, I had this horrible side effect and my, I got vaccine A as my primary series. What should I get as a booster? I would modify. But in general, what the data shows is that a heterologous boost is better. Um, something along the lines of what we would call hybrid immunity, whether that's from infection, a booster, you know, whatever.
0: So that that that's an interesting question and, and raises another one. Actually, two questions. One actually several uh, uh listeners asked a question relating to Humoral versus cellular immunity, we measure antibodies. We don't have readily available tests, uh, clinical tests to measure T-cell immunity. And yet, traditionally, we think of viruses as uh, primarily being targeted by T-cell immunity. The question is, is there anything going on in that space in terms of understanding who may be better protected, even if the antibodies are dropping?
2: Yeah, those questioners are exactly right. Um, and as you point out, Alex, the, the problem is we do not have valid, validated routinely available clinical tests for T-cell subset um, uh, uh, immune parameters. That actually is coming and, and will come, but we don't have it yet. So So antibody is valuable in terms of infection blocking and therefore preventing disease. But once infection happens, it is really the adaptive cellular immune system that protects us and resolves infection and disease. Excellent. And those, and those, and those are well-maintained, I should say, uh, in relation to vaccine. The waning I'm talking about relates to antibody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Uh, a couple other questions focusing on uh, types of vaccines. And I know you have personal interest there and some efforts in uh, alternative vaccine uh, strategies. Mm-hmm. Uh, spike protein versus multiple proteins are multiple proteins on the horizon as mRNA or protein-based vaccines and how far
2: out yeah so uh, very early on in the pandemic I published an editorial called uh, 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 SARS-CoV-2 vaccines the tortoise and the hare and uh, it was roundly panned none of my um, uh, co-workers in the field believed what I had to say uh, and kind of dissed it. I wish I had been wrong, but I've turned out to be right that S-only vaccine approaches are the Achilles heel of these vaccines. We would never take a single antigen vaccine against a highly variable RNA virus. And so I think next-gen vaccines will include more than S-protein, Uh, those will be second-generation vaccines. They'll include whole protein, perhaps different adjuvants. Third-generation vaccines are going to be oral and nasal spray, maybe even transcutaneously administered vaccines.
0: Interesting. Um, A couple questions coming in regarding the immunity-based, immunity immunity driven by the infection versus immunization. And you showed nicely in your slides that people that have had COVID and had uh, immunization had better protective immunity for longer. Do we know whether, in light of the fact that Omicron is not, infection is not uh, prevented or severe disease not as well prevented as Delta or the original, do we know whether Omicron infection prevents better further or repeat omicron infections
2: is there any yeah. data on that yeah it's I think it's too early to say anything definitive I will say for those that are interested yesterday's MMWR you can subscribe to that free electronically comes from CDC does look take does take a first glance at uh, uh, sustained immunity protecting against omicron Delta and uh, uh, I guess it was just those two variants they looked at. I, I think that remains an open question. If you survive the infection, does it boost antibody? Yes. Does it boost T cells and resistance against disease? Yes. For how long and to what magnitude is the question? And if you will, at what price? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Another practical question that's been asked over and over is uh, I've had COVID you know, uh, how long after COVID should I, how long should I wait to get my booster?
2: Well, that's a really good, uh, as you say, practical question. Our, the original guidance was 90 days later. And the reason for that is uh, immunity didn't tend to wane until that point. I still think that's a good general, you know, thumb in the wind kind of answer. But what we can say is that it's safe to receive it as soon as your symptoms of COVID resolve. What would I personally do? I would probably wait at least 30 days if I had a normal underlying immune system. I wouldn't wait that long. If I didn't, I would try to boost my immunity as high as I could.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very good. Um, So uh, repeated questions coming in, and I think if I distill them all to, to this, is... Do we expect at any point, is there any active work uh, in developing strain-specific boosters? And if so, how far out is
2: that? Yeah, um, so uh, both Moderna and Pfizer have created an Omicron-specific vaccine platform. They believe they will be testing that by March. So the question would be how long before they would have that data. Will Omicron still be around at that point, and what will be the regulatory pathway? Will FDA simply consider that a strain change, much like we do with influenza, and not require prolonged, large clinical trials? I think they, I think they won't require that. So uh, conceivably, by well, probably by summer, uh, if not fall, we'll have variant, fo- probably before fall, we'll have a variant focused vaccine. And a lot of questions regarding the general
0: necessity of the fourth booster uh, and whether particularly healthcare workers and particularly at Mayo, do you envision any um, uh, pr- uh, you know strict process to enforce additional boosters? And will we
2: do that annually thereafter? Yeah, I, You know, I can't speak for, for Mayo policy because I, I don't think a policy has been devised yet. We're all still learning about uh, Omicron. Let, let me go back a bit, though, Alex, to say that, that that second booster, if you will, a fourth dose, does raise antibody levels. In fact, it raises them about fivefold. So, so it does work in boosting antibody. The problem is, in the face of Omicron, which reduces that neutralizing ability by 40 to 100 fold, that boost isn't enough. And that's why a fourth dose may not be uh, as valuable. Would there be exceptions? Somebody who did not have a healthy immune system, uh, maybe somebody uh, older, um, possibly for healthcare workers. I I find that one a little harder to to get to uh, in my own mind. I think it's going to await a variant-focused vaccine. Now, another thing that could happen is that let's say we have a, a new variant that has the transmiss- still has high transmissibility like Omicron, but reverts to something more virulent, but doesn't escape neutralizing antibody as well as Omicron does. Then a fourth booster dose might happen. In regards to your question about annual booster, yes, I think we're going to find ourselves there. Um, uh, Moderna, for one, is already announcing that by fall of 2023, they anticipate a combined influenza and and uh, COVID vaccine. Possibly what will be added to that in the further future would be RSV.
0: Thank you. So in, in this answer, you also touched on, on different populations, elderly, immunosuppressed, and so on. And you also showed that uh, there are differences in your talk between different people, in terms of antibody levels at least. Do we have any guidance or any uh, firm data yet to start devising approaches that are going to be different from um, you know, universal, we're all, all equal? Are, do we approach people that are immunosuppressed differently? Do we approach elderly? Is there anything that we can use to guide that
2: in terms of frequency of the boosts uh, and so on? Interesting, you should ask me that question because uh, I devised an area of vaccinology that that we termed vaccinomics, which included the idea of individualized or personalized vaccinology, much like you know you do in your practice, Alex. We try to personalize and individualize based on factors we know will impact outcome. I think we very much should move that. It's hard in the midst of the fire we call a pandemic, but we've already done it to some degree. We have recommendations for different vaccines based on age group, different doses based on underlying medical condition. I think that trend will continue. Thank you.
0: And uh, summarizing, again, a few other questions, uh, as we think, uh, as we look at the uh, this movie, as you said, playing for the fifth time, yeah. uh, there are many, many aspects that are outside of the control of vaccines and being able to really immunize. But if we focus on vaccines, uh, even with the great success that we've had with the initial vaccine, it's clear that human behavior will drive new variants and uh, vaccines may not work. Is there anything in terms of systemic approach to vaccine development that can make us more nimble to adapt and introduce
2: new vaccines as the strains change? Yeah, that's a that's a very thoughtful question, Alex. Um, I, I would say two things, one is we have seen Uh, the ability of the FDA to shorten the regulatory pathway in a manner that did not compromise safety, i.e. it worked. Um, So I think we have that on our side. I think the second thing, just like we're doing with influenza, and my lab is working on with COVID, is the development of so-called universal COVID or influenza vaccines. And I think that's the long-term answer not not you know kind of the whack-a-mole chase each variant but rather a vaccine to to the degree that we can predict would cover all of the variants that we might expect that means more than s protein and building immunity against um invariant portions of the viral genome and protein thank you um question also uh,
0: that you mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, animal reservoirs, and you mentioned white-tailed deer. Uh, I guess the questions could be summarized as: uh, What animals? Is there something that we need to be particularly careful about?
2: Well, you know, let, let me just say that in my own in my own research, uh, I use mice and hamsters. You may have heard about uh, the hamster outbreak in Hong Kong, and they had to call. Something like 2,000 uh, hamsters. So those are clearly infected. White tailed deer in the US are infected with SARS CoV 2. They don't seem to have the clinical illness phenotype that humans do, but it parallels the prevalence of infection in the local population. We do not understand why. Why is that important? Because it, number one, says there's an animal reservoir, and number two, the phenomena of so called reverse zoonosis. Where we got infected from a bat-derived coronavirus, it now multiplies in the human population and changes, moves to deer, multiplies through deer, mutates in ways that might not have happened in humans, and then transmitted back to humans. But we don't understand why the deer and how the deer are getting uh, infected. Very good. I think we'll wrap
0: it up here. I'll just ask a very last one for you. Uh, 30
2: seconds message of hope. So this was the glimmers of hope. Um, Number one, uh, for for all of us that don't want to be infected, a proper mask worn properly with uh, properly administered vaccines in a booster and where appropriate physical distancing. Works and it works spectacularly well. Not perfectly, nothing human made does, but it works spectacularly well. I, eat, I would not go eat indoors in a restaurant. I would not go to a concert or something like that. You're just rolling, you're playing Russian roulette, to, to use a phrase. Um, the other thing is that uh, Evuchel, the combination of monoclonal antibodies that can be administered every six months, looks to be highly effective, including against Omicron. We have rapidly developed monoclonals. There are two oral antivirals that uh, are, are coming very quickly. They have their limitations, and I didn't go into those, but all of those are glimmers of, 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 of hope, I believe. Thank you. Uh, Thank you
0: very much, especially for that last part. Uh, And thank you for being with us today. Uh, I can tell you that just by looking at the number of people still present, which is over 200 still, uh, 15 or or 18 minutes after we were supposed to end, uh, tells you, gives you a hint of uh, how important people find this topic. Really appreciate your expertise and your time
2: that you spent with us. Thank you, Alex. It's It's a privilege to be able to share, as we all do at Mayo Clinic, our knowledge among each other. Uh, and thank you for the honor. Thank you, and thank you,
0: everybody. We will see you back in a week. Bye-bye.